Father in heaven, yes, Lord. <laughs> we want what we want. And uh, Lord, sometimes it's not what we need. We know we need the rain. And I know there are, we just need to be thankful for it. We love our sunshine and our warm days. But Father, again, we do praise you for the rain and even snow in the mountains that provides water throughout the summer and beyond. And so, Lord, we do thank you. And we thank you for this morning. We thank you for bringing us all here together as a church body, a church family, to worship you, your Son, in spirit and in truth. Lord, we thank you for just the, the beautiful words and, and music sung. And, Lord, prayers prayed and scripture read and heard. And, uh, Lord, we continue now in your word, worshiping you through your word, ask for just your blessing upon this time as we consider, Lord, what your word says in regard to leadership in the local church, and Lord, as always, show us how to apply it, and Father, we pray all of this in your son Jesus' name, amen. Julie and I were blessed this last week, as many of you know, to be able to go away on a little vacation to uh, Hawaii. So that's a, it's just a terrible place. Nobody should ever have to go <clears throat> to, uh, to Hawaii. We had a marvelous time. It was fun. It was adventuresome. It was relaxing, all the above. But it got me to thinking, because while we were there, <clears throat> we... We had some great adventures and had all kinds of uh, uh, things lined up. But a lot of these adventures required qualified people, qualified guides to help lead us through the adventure or things could quickly go south. For instance, we, we got to go ziplining. And of course, you know, there's Julie screaming. At, well, no, she's enjoying. Look at that. And uh, on that platform is one of our guides, and on the other platform, the receiving platform, is another guide. Let's just say they were integral to our safety and enjoyment of the zip lining adventure. Now, <clears throat> this next one, you also need a specially qualified guide for, <clears throat> and that is to make sure that if you've never surfed before, you can do so without breaking a, a bone. I jumped on the board. I thought, I've body surfed. I've done, you know, I've never surfed on a board before. So I'm paddling out and I hear this local guy say, hey, where are you going? And he's in the water. And I said, well, I'm catching a wave. And he goes, come on back in. <laughs> and he was guiding two other people and took pity on me and uh, said, you don't need to go way out there. And it was a good thing, right? Because I probably would have killed myself. <clears throat> You also need a qualified guide for this next one. When you go to a giant coffee plantation and they teach you all about the coffee of Kauai. And there's our qualified guide doing uh, the Chemex and the French press. And, and we're going to make a coffee drinker out of Brock Boldy yet. I'm telling you. <clears throat> and then we also needed a qualified guide to, well, when you have lots of yummy food, Right. A luau, then you need to have qualified chefs to prepare your meal. Um, I, I might be able to live without poi. If I never had to eat poi again, that might be okay. But I tried it. I tried it. <clears throat> and then lastly, if you do this uh, thing, you definitely want to have a guide when you go kayaking on a river. 
and then you get out to go take a hike to a waterfall. Now, it had been raining that day. <clears throat> and our guide, you can see him in that third picture. He's wading out in the stream and he says, now you see that rock out there? If that rock is exposed, we know it's safe to go across. Well, there's like six inches of rock exposed. And he said, I think we can do it. So he's out there checking it out. And yeah, okay. He said, I think it's fine. So eight of us tromp through this river. It's up to our waist. And we're walking across. Poor Brock loses his flip-flop. So he goes barefoot the rest of the trip, the rest of the hike. Well, when we get back after the waterfall, which was amazingly beautiful, we get to the river and the guide comes down and he goes, huh, rock's gone. It didn't float downstream, friends. It was gone because the river had risen probably another six inches. And he and I both are out there testing it. And now it's up to my belly button and you can feel it. And there's these rapids right below us. I said, there's no way we're getting across this river. Make a long story short, we all swam across the river. But of course, we go as far up there as we can so that by the time you get to the opposite shore, it's like 15, 20 feet later. The jury is still out whether this was a qualified guide or not. Part of us thinks he had no business taking us across that river. But thankfully, everybody was safe and sound. I don't just share this with you to show you fun pictures from our trip, though it was really fun and amazing and, and uh, all of that good stuff. The fact is, God needs qualified men to be elders in his church, to lead the local church. They must be qualified. And that is what we continue with this morning in Titus chapter 1. So please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1 and please stand for the reading of God's word. Like I've said many times, we should be getting this section pretty well memorized, huh? Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. The qualifications of elders, that's not part of the text. That's just my little cool heading there in my, in my Bible. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Paul, the apostle, writes to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable. Loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. Holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching. So that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Hear the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, folks, in our little mini-series here in... In the book of Titus chapter 1 on biblical leadership, just to give you the quick uh, reminder, the quick review, we first learn that this is one office, uh, this one office of elder is comprised of three terms that we see in the New Testament. Episcopos, which is translated overseer, presbyteros, which is translated as elder, and poimeno, translated as pastor or shepherd. 
Then we went on and we learned about an elder's calling from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, followed then by an elder's role. And then two weeks ago, we started in on an elder's qualifications here, um, looking at uh, uh, the first three. <clears throat> now, number one uh, in our elder qualifications was that the elder must be above Reproach, meaning without accusation, free of charge, free from a charge, blameless. It means that the elder has done nothing uh, to bring legitimate accusation against himself, as well as in the sense that no unfounded accusation would even be able to stick because the elder's character and his walk is such. Secondly, we learn that if he is married, he is to be the husband of one wife, which speaks to his marital fidelity. In other words, his faithfulness to his wife. And then thirdly, that if he has children, they must be faithful in their obedience and submission to him, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. We learn that dissipation is that, that word that gets translated as prodigal. Like when we have the, the, the prodigal son, which means abandoned or reckless, wasteful, um, a wasteful lifestyle. And while most texts actually read children who believe, we learn that for numerous reasons, this word in this case is better translated as faithful. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul gives us the extended version, which includes the reason for this qualification. He says, he must be one who manages his own household well. Keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his household, how will he take care of the church of God? And the implied answer is that he will not be able to take care of the church of God if he can't take care of his own household. So we continue on now with this uh, look at, at qualifications of an elder. Look back again at verse 7 and notice how Paul repeats the first qualification from verse 6. And we already talked about this when we were in verse 6, so we won't spend a lot of time on this. Uh, when, when somebody repeats something, why do they do it? Well, they do it for emphasis, right? Because it's something important they really want hammered home. Uh, which we said a couple of weeks ago, this above reproach is really the umbrella qualification for all the others because all the others that come after being above reproach if any one of those is not being uh, adhered to well then the person is not above reproach so it's again it's kind of that overarching qualification uh this time um the the leader uh is identified specifically as an overseer again episkopos which again demonstrates that the overseer is synonymous with elder or presbyteros used in verse 5. Now, furthermore, here in verse 7, notice that he must be above reproach as God's steward. So this is a have to. It's not optional. And we learned last time that what Paul has in mind here when he uses this word steward is that of a, a house manager. It's an administrator, a trustee of of someone else's property, you might think of Joseph when Joseph was put in charge of Potiphar's household. And, and we would read back in Genesis 39, 4, where it says, so Joseph 
found favor in his sight, meaning Potiphar's sight, and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned, he put in his charge. Well, this is similar in, 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 in uh, the sense of God's house and having the elders have oversight over God's property, his church. Just like Paul wrote to Timothy about managing the church of God, he says the same thing to Titus, but reminding him that as God's manager of his church, he must do this in an above reproach kind of way. Now, this should make sense to us when we we see what can happen to a church when its managers are not above reproach, when they have committed wrongdoing that now taints the church and and causes the church to be seen in some kind of a negative light, both inside and even from outside the church. This kind of sin from a church's leadership will absolutely just stymie a church and it'll it'll render it ineffective for gospel ministry. It's why it's so important. And then Paul there here has in mind some very specific areas that a church leader must be above reproach as God's steward, which we'll look at here in the rest of verse 7 this morning. And in the rest of verse 7, he gives us five, five more qualifications given to us in a, in a negative way. In other words, this is what you should not do, what an elder must not do in order to remain above reproach. The first is that an elder is to not be self-willed. Not to be self-willed. The Greek there, the Greek word literally means pleased. And it refers to one who is pleased with himself and despises others. In 2 Peter chapter 2, in a list categorized as the unrighteous who are being kept under punishment for the day of judgment, Peter cites those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties, end quote. Now, one Greek dictionary describes self-willed as, quote, a person who obstinately maintains his own opinion or asserts his own rights but is reckless of the rights, feelings, and interests of others, end quote. In the Septuagint, the Septuagint is, was the first Greek version of the Old Testament. When they translated the Old Testament into Greek, in Proverbs 21 and verse 24, it uses the same Greek word that we have here uh, for stubborn. And so to be self-willed is to be stubbornly insistent on getting one's own way. It's that old, you know, it's my way or the highway kind of uh, mentality. Alexander Strzok, who I've quoted a couple times from his book, Biblical Eldership, says, quote, We must remember that the local congregation belongs to God, not the overseer. The overseer is God's servant. Not a master or owner, thus he has no right to be self-willed when caring for God's precious people. End quote. A self-willed person is not a team player, which an elder absolutely 
must be. And this can be such a huge problem in a church when, when even one of the, the, like the main lead preaching senior pastor or whatever is kind of identified as, I've used this term before, the man, right? When the guy up front here is the man. And, and you know, maybe you see this in a, in a smaller church that maybe only has one pastor or even in a more baptistic model of government, which only has a the main pastor is kind of the main man, and then there's deacons under him and trustees under that. And and uh, this was my experience even when I first went up north to First Baptist Church. It had that model of government where you had the one pastor, you had deacons underneath him that were kind of functioning like elders, and you have trustees that are kind of functioning like deacons. But it can be so easy for that one that one guy to just kind of be self-willed on his own and not a team player. Thankfully, everything that I had learned, whether it be seminary or even here at Calvary Bible, was a plurality of elders, a, a, a group of elders that were team players. And, uh, and so this is what we set out to accomplish even when we first went up north. And 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 thankfully, that is exactly um, the people of the church got behind that and saw that that's what Scripture taught and opted for a different model. <clears throat> In any case, you you can see how that kind of a model can be a breeding ground for becoming self-willed, self-willed leaders, which can lead to arrogance and stubbornness and becoming headstrong and maybe too independent or too self-assertive. It can further lead to an ungraciousness or being inconsiderate towards others' opinions and feelings, whether that's amongst the elders themselves or towards the congregation. The other thing that can happen is that an already self-willed man who kind of steps into one of these leadership roles he might actually look for a, a pastorate where, um, you know, he might gravitate towards churches or church government structures that will kind of accommodate this in him and will kind of allow him to be the man and, and just kind of run the show in any way he wants. Or a self-willed man will end up on a church's elder board, whether they are a paid staff person, whether they are a lay leader, and it usually doesn't take long before their MO, their method of operation becomes clear and problems start to emerge on the board. The board starts to splinter and even fracture. Now you might think to yourself, well, how, how would this even happen? How, how would a man like this end up on a board, an elder board in the first place? Well, I think because being self-willed can be seen or it can certainly be presented maybe as somebody who, you know, gets things done. I mean, they, they have ideas and, and they're good at implementing these ideas. And maybe some of their ideas are good. And so board might be like, this, you know, this guy's great. He's got all kinds of good ideas, man. He gets things done. Let's get him on here. He's a mover. He's a shaker. We, we got to get him on the board. And, and then they do. And next thing you know, they're getting a little bit more or a lot more. And what they bargained for. And what once seemed like a, just a, a good idea, man, a, a go-getter of sorts, it turns out to be at the expense of other men and their ideas and their giftedness as he 
He just kind of railroads over the rest. And the truth is, once someone does get on an elder board and they might show themselves to be not qualified, whether it's in this department or some other qualification, it can be extremely difficult to get them off the board. Again, Alexander Strzok comments, a self-willed man will scatter God's sheep because he is unyielding, overbearing, and blind to the feelings and opinions of others, end quote. Now, positively speaking, to not be self-willed means that an elder is willing to consider others. He is willing to yield his rights to Another, it means that they are able to take criticism, to admit a wrong, to apologize. Ultimately, it means humility, friends, humility. And this is all true, not just of an individual elder, but again, this is also true of an elder board as a whole. An elder board has to be willing to acknowledge when they are wrong and absolutely apologize when necessary you know and the tendency on a board might be to think well yeah but if we do that then we're going to lose credibility with the people you know and and we've got to we've got to keep up appearances with the people and we've got to come off strong and we've got to have all the right answers when in reality the opposite is true if the board doesn't admit its mistakes or any wrongdoing or be willing to apologize then it certainly will lose credibility. Now, church family, this is, this is something that your current board of elders does not want to be. Self-willed in any way, lacking humility, not willing to admit wrongs and apologize when mistakes are made. Please pray for us. Pray for all of us in that regard. Secondly, what an elder is to not be, they are not to be quick-tempered. They are not to be quick-tempered. Looking back again at verse 7. Simply put, anger. They shouldn't be prone to anger. They shouldn't be prone to wrath. The King James translates it as not soon angry. The Septuagint uses this word in Proverbs 22, verse 24. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man. Not quick-tempered is a man not easily angered or given towards uh, outbursts of anger or fits of rage. In fact, one of God's very own attributes is that he is slow to anger. Exodus 34, 6 and other texts. And so the elder should be slow to anger as well. Now, a second reason besides following God, following his son as our examples, we find in James chapter 1 verse 20, where James writes, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Did you get that? In other words, an elder prone to anger will not be able to help build Christ's church or advance God's kingdom here on earth, but rather he is just going to inadvertently or intentionally tear it down. And the truth is, there's a, there's a lot going on in any church that could potentially make somebody, even an elder, angry. You may have heard the saying, church would be great if it wasn't filled with people, right? 
But that's what the church is. It's people. It's all of us. You say, well, yes, but we have good Christian people in our church. Believers, Christ followers. Well, yes, amen. But guess what? It's full of true, believing, Christian, Christ-following people who are what? Sinners. Starting with yours truly. Sinners can be the cause of anger. Sinners can get angry. Guess what? Even elders can get angry. Shh. These people, we have people here, there are people, and there is sin. And there are situations here in the church, and there is sin. And there is circumstances, and there is sin. And the elder has to be able to wade through all of this. And he will only do so effectively if he is able to control his anger. We see this in Scripture, right? Many scriptures about anger. Proverbs 29.22 says, An angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. In other words, not only is anger sinful, but it will lead to further problems as it stirs up strife and leads to further sin. In Proverbs 14 and verse 29 He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Now, do you think it's good for an elder to have great understanding? Absolutely. Is it good for an elder to exalt folly? Definitely not. Proverbs 25 and verse 28 says, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. I mean, think about that. It's a great word picture. Picture the the walls of a city being the church, not physically speaking, but in the sense of people. And the elder who has no control over his temper will break, crush, and destroy the people of the church. God's people. God's people that Christ shed his blood for. And of course, along with anger often comes what? Ah. The hot-tempered tongue, it usually goes hand in hand. Proverbs 15 and verses 1 and 2 say, A harsh word stirs up anger, and the mouth of fools spouts folly. And then in verse 4 of Proverbs 15, Perversion in the tongue crushes the spirit. And in verse 28 of Proverbs 15, The mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Proverbs 12 and verse 18 tells us there is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword. When you speak rashly, it's like thrusting a sword into somebody, cutting them, wounding, hurting them. The old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. It's not true. Words hurt. And of course, who can forget what James says about the tongue? It is a fire. It is the world of iniquity. It defiles the entire body. It's a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. He says in verses 9 to 10, With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Amen? Especially for elders, overseers, pastor shepherds. 
The antidote, I got this right. I didn't say anecdote this time. Antidote. The antidote is Proverbs 14, 29. He who is slow to anger, we just read that, has great understanding. Proverbs 16, 32 tells us he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who captures the city. It is better to be able to rule your spirit than the mighty man who can go out and battle against a city and capture it. Proverbs 17, verse 27 says, He who restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. This is what we want as elders. And of course, the fruit of the spirit, right? The part of the fruit of the spirit right there at the end is self-control. Self-control. We could control ourselves. We can control our anger. We can control our tongues. Missionary great Hudson Taylor, who founded the China Inland Mission, once said, My greatest temptation is to lose my temper over the slackness and inefficiency so disappointing in those on whom I depended. It is no use to lose my temper, only kindness But, oh, it is such a trial, end quote. It is such a trial, isn't it? It can be extremely difficult. I would say that I know this personally. This is something that I know I have to be on guard for, whether it's with my family, whether it's with my church family, whether it's amongst the other leaders. I was thinking about this, and you know what? When, when, we, when we get angry, you know, for me anyway, it, it tends to be because I'm not getting my way. Oh, wait a minute. That goes back to self-willed, huh? So I'm in worse shape than I thought. Okay, you need to keep praying for me. Thirdly, an elder is to be not addicted to wine. Not addicted to wine. The phrase, me peroinos, May peroinos is the Greek uh, phrase there. May being not. And para, para, excuse me, peroinos, um, oinos being wine. It's a compound word. So par being near or by, oinos being wine. The whole point here is it literally translates as not lingering beside wine. Not lingering beside it. And we see this same negative qualification in 1 Timothy 3.3. We also see it in our list for deacons, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 8. The complete word study dictionary says, pertaining to wine or drunken. The word does not include the responsible and temperate usage of alcohol. Rather, it has in view the abuse or incessant use of it. The word picture is that of an individual who always has a bottle or wineskin on the table. So signifies addiction, end quote. Now, we can recognize that the drinking of alcohol, it can be kind of a touchy thing for many Christians. And for some, with very good reason, as alcoholism has destroyed many lives, shattered families, wrecked careers, ruined some people financially, and even brought death to some. It is reported that half of the murders, suicides, and accidental deaths in America are related to alcohol. One in four families has 
some problem with alcohol, making alcohol one of the largest health problems in America. And of course, we we want to ask, well, what do the scriptures say? What does the Bible say? Does it say anything? It says plenty, actually. Thankfully so. It's not silent on the issue. Going back to the book of Proverbs in chapter 20, verse 21. It says, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. Proverbs 23 presents a very sad picture of a drunkard, shows how heavy drinking brings misery, and tells us not to join with those who abuse alcohol. In Isaiah verse uh, chapter 28, we see that God's wrath was upon Israel for her sin of drunkenness. Followed by just a very vivid picture of drunkards, including even priests and prophets who were losing their moral judgment because of the alcohol. In the New Testament, Jesus, in the context of his return, warns against drunkenness while Paul exhorts us that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. He also tells his readers, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5 and verse 18. Paul also reminds us how drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of heaven in 1 Corinthians 6, how being a drunkard is what some of us were before faith in Christ, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and how as Christians we should not associate with a drunkard who claims to be a brother in Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Now, this all being said, notice what the common thread here is in all of this. It is indeed drunkenness. In other words, the Bible doesn't prohibit alcohol. Jesus' first miracle was to turn about 180 gallons of water into wine at a wedding. This after they ran out of wine. And the guests were kind of already well on their way to their happy places. We know this because the sommelier tasted it. And he said to the bridegroom, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Meaning, man, give them the good wine first. They're on their way to the happy place. Pull out the cheap stuff. But no, instead, Jesus made this just amazing wine. Well, some people like to say, well, the wine in Jesus' day was watered down. My Greek professor says otherwise. There is nothing in the Greek grammar that indicates that the Lord's wine was anything less than top shelf. In fact, he loved to say in class, my Lord is a winemaker. Of course, Paul tells Timothy, use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. In other words, it was understood that it had medicinal value as well. The bottom line here, friends, is that elders are not to have drinking problems or, or we could say even the appearance of a problem. And remember what the overarching qualification was that we had back at the beginning, right? That an elder always has to be above reproach. That there would be no way that anyone could even make a serious accusation towards an elder of being a drunkard. So, for instance, imagine that I was uh, with my wife and 
and Julie and we're down there in San Fernando Boulevard, uh, downtown Burbank. We're sitting at one of those outdoor seating areas, you know, and I got a glass of beer or I'm drinking a glass of wine. And you happen to be walking down the sidewalk and you you see me. Now you go, has Pastor Jay sinned? Well, as long as I'm not drunk, no. I might even argue and say, well, I am simply participating in one of my many Christian liberties. But is it the wisest, most prudent thing for me as a pastor, as an elder to do? Probably not. And since I never want to cause a brother or sister to stumble, I always want to remain above reproach. You're never going to see that. You're not going to walk down the street and see that happening. Now, if you were again walking downtown and you saw me and this time I'm coming out of some sports bar, this might shock you. But again, have I sinned? Well, maybe only if you see me stumble out drunk, you know, and bottle in one hand. And well, what if I told you, though, that I was I was there because well, I just wanted to watch the game and the TV's on the fritz. You go, wait a minute, you're not a big sports guy. That doesn't work, right? No, I wanted to play darts. I wanted to shoot a game of pool. You know, I'm, I was drinking Shirley Temple's. And again, uh, Roy Rogers, right? I remember as a kid, Shirley Temple or Roy Roger. Again, though not necessarily sin, I would have to ask myself, is this the wisest thing to do? Is this the most prudent thing that I could do? Probably not, because somebody could see me and somebody could get the wrong idea. And then it does become questionable if I am above reproach, because now, even if I haven't sinned, I might have given the appearance of sin. I might have opened up myself. I might have now opened up even the church to scrutiny and accusation. I know a brother who's a pastor who decided that he wanted to uh, partake in his Christian liberties. And he began frequenting a, a cigar club that served alcohol and, and he would drink brandy. He told me this. Smoke cigars, drink brandy, group of folks. And, um, and again, stood on it that this is my Christian liberty to do so. And this was, I guess, okay until finally somebody from the church saw him. And it got back to the elders, and the elders, you know, met with the, the pastor, and, and uh, you know, is this true? Yep. Well, do you think that's the wisest thing to do? It's my Christian liberty. I'm doing it. And he refused. He refused to forsake that. I don't know whether he was fired or he resigned, but one of the two happened. And he's no longer with the church. That just blew me away. Just knocked my socks off. That somebody would be so headstrong that, nope, this is my Christian liberty and I can do this. And nobody can tell me otherwise. So, not only are elders not to be addicted to wine or beer or any other kind of alcohol or drug... But they must stay above reproach, not even giving the appearance that they are addicted so that their testimony and work for the Lord will not be damaged. That has got to be the most important. Fourthly, the elder is not to be pugnacious. Again, we see the same word here used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. It means to strike. 
This means an elder must not be a striker or a bruiser or a fighter or violent or ready for a blow. It can also be used of a contentious or quarrelsome person or one who would wound a brother with his words or attitude, which means that it can refer to speech as well as physical actions. Now, you know, we sit and we go, well, this should it should, should be a no brainer, right? Imagine if after church you're walking out to your car in the parking lot and there's a couple elders going at it, beating each other up. Or some elder verbally abusing a congregation member. And yet, here's the truth, friends. Elders are called to deal with some very intense, emotional, sometimes volatile situations. And if you have a man in there that is prone to having a bad temper or being pugnacious... You have to think, is it is it likely for him that he's going to be good at diffusing an intense situation? Or is he going to jump in and contribute to it and even make it worse? This is the shepherd whose only answer to difficult sheep is to scream or yell at them. Use his staff against them. Even to get physical after them. There was an old monastery near Babenhausen, Germany. And uh, if you were to go in there, you would see two pairs of deer's antlers interlocked. They were found in that position years before the deer, the two deer had been fighting. Their horns got jammed together and they could not be separated. And guess what? They died that way. They died that way. Dr. Norman Kerr, remembered for his work in the British temperance movement of the 1800s, said, I would like to carry those horns into every house and school. And we might add, maybe they need to be in every church. And while the scriptures teach us that that we're not to return evil for evil, and if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also, the scriptures don't say that you can't defend yourself. It's rather talking about not retaliating, not seeking revenge in that angry, pugnacious way. We are not to have an attitude or reputation of being a fighter or bad-tempered or maybe even irritable or or out of control. Troll as an individual, it's just simple as that. As soon as I said irritable, I'm like, oh, I need to work on that. I'm one of those that gets hangry, right? Hangry, hunger, anger. You're hungry, you start getting angry. Julie's like, we need to get food in his belly. I, I think we're done with this, so I don't think anything need, more need, should need to be said here regarding being pugnacious. There's just no room for it. Fifthly, lastly for this morning... The elders not to be fond of sordid gain. Not to be fond of sordid gain. That phrase, fond of sordid gain, is actually one word there in the Greek. It describes a person who is eager to gain, especially financially, even if such gain degrades his moral character. It's also used in 1 Timothy 3, 3 of elders, and again in chapter 3, verse 8 of deacons. Let's let's first just mention what this is not saying. It is not saying that as a Christian, you cannot have a lot of money or even be rich. Many people in the Bible were blessed with lots of money and possessions. Godly people, Abraham, 
Job, David, Solomon, just to name a few. It's also not saying that you can't strive to earn a decent living for your family and even look for jobs that have a decent pay scale. It's also not saying that you must live in poverty in order to be more spiritual. And I would say shame on those churches that think this way and intentionally try to keep their pastor or pastors humble by not paying them a fair wage. I am so pleased to say this is not one of those churches. Nor was First Baptist when I was up north, even though it was a smaller church. They were gracious towards the people that they employed. Now, what does it mean... Uh, What it does mean is just what it says, that the elder is not to be in love with money. He is not to be greedy for money. He is not to do improper things to gain money or, or scheme how he might amass more money. And you better believe that the scriptures speak much about money and the problems of being in love with it. You might remember even going back to Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5.10 when he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. Meaning we'll never be happy. It'll never be enough. There will always be more that we, that, we, that we want, that we strive for. Or Matthew 6 and verse 24 has our Lord saying, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. End quote. That's just the simple truth. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 6.5. Should just have to back up there, not too far. Through 2 Timothy into 1 Timothy chapter 6. Oh wow, it's just like two pages turned. There we go. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. This money thing, it was a huge problem there in Ephesus where Timothy was at. And so Paul writes to Timothy where he he speaks of men in the church. Quote, this is verse 5. 1 Timothy 6, who suppose, I'm about halfway through verse 5, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's the anecdote, and that's parentheses, my own. Verse 11, but flee from these things, you man of God. Flee from these things, you woman of God. Now, just based on these few scriptures that that we've read, you can see some of the consequences of pursuing money and the love of it. It's a vain pursuit. Therefore, you'll never be satisfied. You'll always want more. Secondly, you will hate God. Or at the very least, you will despise Him. Because you can't love money and love God 
at the same time. It's like oil and water, doesn't mix. Thirdly, you shouldn't look to your religion to make you rich. Fourthly, the love of money breeds discontentment. Five, the old saying is true. You can't take it with you. And six, the love and pursuit of money will bring with it temptations and snares and foolish and harmful desires, which will ultimately lead you to ruin and destruction. And so needless to say that if elders are plunging themselves into ruin and destruction by being fond of sordid gain, then rest assured they are taking their churches, they are taking their people down with them. And lastly, it can cause someone to abandon the faith. Now, we understand that from Scripture is telling us that, well, then they were never truly saved to begin with. And it just carries them further away from the faith. And with this, they will be pierced by many griefs. <laughs> you think this isn't true? Just listen to uh, listen to what some of our most famous well, millionaires. Now, of course, we have billionaires. But back in the day, there were just millionaires. Here's some classics. W.H. Vanderbilt said, The care of $200,000 is enough to kill anyone. There's no pleasure in it. J. Paul Getty, what can I say? I only know I am desolate. Henry Ford, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. Andrew Carnegie, Millionaires seldom smile. John D. Rockefeller, I have made millions, but they have brought me no happiness. And one I think is the most saddest of all from John Jacob Astor, who said, I am the most miserable man on earth. These are what these men had to say about pursuing money. So if elders are to love Anything, friends, first and foremost, it needs to be Christ. It needs to be you, His church. And if we don't, how can we expect any of you to do the same? And really, what's not to love? What is not to love? How could we, how could we dare put something else, anything else, in that first love position other than Christ his word his church I mean after all it's Christ who created us with God the Father with the Holy Spirit it is Christ who came to this earth to die for us who who left the glories of his heavenly realm his heavenly kingdom to for a time take on human flesh and be tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin so that he could be that that precious sacrifice that perfect sacrifice on the cross once and for all no longer would the blood of bulls and goats have to have to uh, be sacrificed on the altar but one man Christ would be sacrificed his blood shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. He didn't just die on the cross though. Three days he was in the tomb. Deader than dead. Just dead. I don't know if you can be deader than dead, right? Just dead. But three days later, rise again. 
resurrect from the grave, conquering death, proving that He is God, proving that we, yes, will have forgiveness of sins and eternal life with Christ, with Him forever and ever. And then thankfully, we're given that tremendous blessing of having the Holy Spirit take up residence in us to now help us through this life and to keep our focus and priorities on the right things. I, I pray for anyone here this morning, if, if you need to know Christ, put your faith and trust in Him, that you would do just that. It doesn't require you to do anything special. We're not going to ask you to come front or raise your hand or anything like that. It's just when I pray here in just a minute, uh, maybe that is your prayer. Just a, a prayer of asking God through His Son, Jesus Christ, to forgive your sins. And yes, I believe. I believe that Christ died for me and, and that He resurrected for me. And Lord, I now look forward to having eternal life with You and that forgiveness of sins, which lasts for all eternity. Now guess what, as we wrap things up here. Guess, guess what about these qualifications? Guess who these five qualifications are also good for? All of you. Yes, these are specific here in this section towards elders. Elders need to be doing all of them all the time. But these are also um, qualifications or, or I should say the result, right, of true believing faith, right? The, the, these are the fruits of righteousness, the fruits of believing faith for all of you to not be self-willed, not be quick-tempered, not be addicted to wine, not be pugnacious, and not be fond of sordid gain. And so, friends, I would just say, uh, in closing, along with praying for yourselves in this regard, and us praying for you as well, please remember to pray for us, your elders. Be praying for future elders. We're going to talk more about that as the weeks uh, go on here. Um, and, and just how we, we look to uh, bring future elders, um, you know, uh, raise them up and, and bring them onto the elder board. Remember, too, that these are standards by which the elders here at Calvary Bible Church are to be held accountable to by, yes, you, the congregation, yes, by the Lord Jesus Christ. They are um, the standard uh, that uh, also should be of the elders so that the congregation would be ready and willing to follow and submit to their leaders. That they would be leaders exemplifying these qualifications. Let's pray. Father, these are uh, these things are weighty. They are at times difficult. Lord, I pray that we come to just good understanding about them as to why they are so important for the leaders of your church to have these qualifications be a part of, of, of their testimony, of their Christian walk. And yes, we recognize, Father, that they are for everybody, but they need to be exemplified by, by us, the, uh, the elders. So help us, Father, to do that well. Help the congregation to do that well, our, our members. Help... Help, Lord, us to remember to pray for future leaders and the qualifications that they need to attain to. 
And Father, if there's anyone here this morning that needs to first and foremost put their faith in Christ, I pray that they would just be praying that prayer of salvation, a prayer seeking your forgiveness and acknowledging Christ as their Savior and Lord. We pray this all in your Son, Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.